Hi, and welcome back to A Feminist Therapist, the podcast where politics meets mental health. I'm your host, David Averick, psychotherapist and social worker, broadcasting to you from Baltimore, Maryland. In this podcast, we try to focus on the big picture, on the structural issues, rather than commenting on the political events of the day as they unfold. And we're going to stay on brand today with a conversation about a super big picture issue, understanding and ultimately preventing child abuse and neglect. So content warning there, because the program discusses child maltreatment in some detail, and we're also going to discuss genocide and the consequences of that. Also, this is another two-part episode. Before we jump into the topic at hand, a little introduction is in order just to acknowledge how drastically our world has changed since our last installment of A Feminist Therapist. My take is that, as far as the virus goes, if we never get an effective vaccine, which is a possibility, then we're going to be stuck at the mercy of the people who refuse to wear masks. We now live in an idiocracy, a system in which the stupidest hold the most power. I think that the debate about masks is really symbolic of where we're at as a country because it essentially boils down to our cultural conflict between individualism and collectivism. Collectivists, like myself, believe that the temporary inconvenience and discomfort of wearing masks, it's a sacrifice you make to protect other people around you. Individualists, on the other hand, confuse inconvenience and discomfort with a violation of their civil rights. This position is offensive to people who have actually had their civil rights violated, but there you go. The thing about individualism is that as an ideology, it's pretty much run out of time. Systemic costs have been externalized to where our actual species might go extinct. We've talked previously on this podcast about the concept from economics known as cost externalization. And I think it's a concept worth grasping in order to prepare us for how to build a new economic system, the one that will inevitably rise from the rubble of late capitalism when this house of cards collapses. Cost externalization is the beating heart of late capitalism. It's the term that describes the ways that businesses increase their profits by offloading their costs onto a third party. A tiny example is how at the grocery store these days, they're getting rid of workers and making customers scan and bag their own groceries. What that means is more profit for the grocery chain because they have fewer people to pay and provide benefits to. A more important example is to think about the bottle of soda that you scanned and bagged yourself at that store. The $1.89 that you pay for that soda does not reflect the actual cost of that bottle. A buck eighty-nine is a total bargain. That's because there are costs associated with both the production and disposal of that bottle, which the companies that made the bottle do not have to bear. What I mean is, to make that bottle, they used heavy machinery to dig up petrochemicals from the Canadian tar sands or wherever, and then they used more heavy machinery to turn those chemicals into plastic. The carbon emissions and the environmental degradation that took place during those events have price tags, but those costs are not reflected in the price of that soda bottle. Most likely, once you're done with the bottle, it'll either end up in the ocean, in a landfill, or in the atmosphere if it's burned. The costs to the environment from the disposal of the plastic, and again, those are measurable costs, those costs are also not reflected in the price of the bottle. The reason that plastic is so cheap is because companies are allowed under our current system to externalize the true cost of the bottle. They're not required to pay to clean up the messes that they make. That's cost externalization. So who pays? Well, we do, both as taxpayers who have to defend ourselves from climate change, and also as mammals who have to live in this environment. 
Whales with bellies full of plastic bags and sea turtles with straws crammed painfully up their noses are also the ones who pay. They literally absorb the costs that are externalized by the plastics industry, which is the same industry as the fossil fuel industry because, of course, most plastic is made from petrochemicals. We as humans also absorb the plastics into our bodies too. Crucially, these companies have known for decades that they're causing climate change and environmental destruction, and they've conspired on purpose to cover it up. This was explored at length by Naomi Oreskes in her book Merchants of Doubt. She compares the activities of fossil fuel companies with respect to climate change to how the tobacco lobby pulled the same shit with cancer by covering up their own research and lying to consumers. The actual costs of smoking have long been externalized onto healthcare systems, where we treat the cancers caused by tobacco abuse. Though class action lawsuits have extracted reparations from the tobacco companies to some extent over the past few decades. And there's a lot of people talking about there needing to be reparations from the fossil fuel industry in the same way. The plastics industry has focused all of their messaging on recycling as the activity that consumers can do to help the environment, but actually what we know from data is that recycling is mostly a joke and it doesn't really help. Remember when we were kids and it used to be recycle, reduce, reuse? Well, the plastics lobby basically got us to forget about reduce and reuse and to focus exclusively on the other one. And that's because plastics represent the last gasp of profitability for the petrochemicals industry. They know that renewables are the future sooner or later. You should check out the PBS Frontline documentary called Plastic Wars, which came out back in March if you want to learn more. Anyway, the thing about cost externalization is that it is the basis for pretty much our entire economic model. Right now, we as American consumers do not have access to a decent standard of living that isn't rooted in cost externalization and ongoing petrochemical consumption. What that means is that as of right now, we don't have a way to get the things we want, at least at the quality that we're used to and on the scale consumers demand, without degrading the environment. But why is that? In my opinion, it's in large part due to politics, because if we had started taking climate change seriously decades ago when the scientists first started talking to us about it, you can imagine that the economy could have changed. We could have developed new ways to find a working balance between consumption, extraction, emission, and conservation. Politics is the canvas onto which the picture of lived reality gets painted. What that means is that the laws that get passed or the tax breaks and subsidies and advantages and drilling rights that are awarded to particular industries and to particular companies within those industries, all of these decisions that are made in the political arena have the power to shape human behavior on the individual and group level. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if George W. Bush had not stolen the 2000 election. In my political fantasy, Al Gore, a noted environmentalist, would have responded to 9-11 differently. Remember how right afterwards, every single person in the whole country wanted to know what they could do to help out? That was probably the last time that our country was politically unified. And what did George Bush tell us to do? He told us to consume, to buy stuff. I remember my aunt showed up at our house with a new SUV that month, and she explained that she was doing her part to help the country. It's worth pointing out that part of Osama bin Laden's motivation for executing the attacks was the United States military presence in Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries after the Gulf War, a war which was waged over disputed oil prices. But what if Gore was in charge? And what if he'd said, hey, we need to get off fossil fuels because look what messing around in oil producing countries leads to? Where would we be right now if he had said that? 
Right after 9-11 would have been the one time in American history when the oil lobby would not have been able to clap back. It would have been politically unfeasible. Meanwhile, one-third of all CO2 emissions in the history of the world have been emitted since 2001. Of course, this fantasy requires the Democratic Party to possess a backbone, something that they have never had as long as I've been paying attention to politics. And that's how you know it's a fantasy. Okay, fantasy aside, what do we do now? I don't have all the answers here, but there are a few things I do know. First, macro and micro experiences always reflect one another. How individual humans grow, develop, and respond to trauma also reflects how groups of humans, including societies, do those same things. Another thing I know is that as long as a person is alive, no matter how traumatized she may be, it is possible to heal if healing is desired. The fact is, people exposed to trauma frequently act in ways that are harmful to themselves and others. It's normative. In the words of trauma scholar Judith Herman, quote, Like traumatized individuals, traumatized countries need to remember, grieve, and atone for their wrongs in order to avoid reliving them. Another thing that I know is that our society is going to undergo massive political, social, and economic changes in our lifetime. Whether that's through civil war, or nonviolent grassroots movements for social change, or something else entirely, I don't know. But what I do know is that the creation of a new society, the one that's going to come after this one, is going to depend in large part on the ideas that are lying around. The concept that I just mentioned of the importance of having ideas lying around during times of social change comes from the work of Naomi Klein, a Canadian social historian and theorist and climate change activist. Klein's second book, The Shock Doctrine, is a super important work that has influenced my thinking a great deal, and I recommend it highly. Klein's thesis in The Shock Doctrine is that over the course of the 20th century, disasters, both natural and man-made, have created opportunities for right-wing economic policies to be forced onto traumatized, distracted, and vulnerable populations. Neoliberal austerity measures, like cutting funding for schools and public health, union busting and the dismantling of worker protections and environmental regulations, and the privatization of public goods and the subsequent accumulation of wealth by oligarchs are classic examples of what Klein identifies as disaster capitalism, responses to crises that favor the 1%. In her work, she draws examples from near and far, including in Chile after the 1973 coup that deposed the democratically elected President Salvador Allende, to how the Republicans used Hurricane Katrina to demolish the New Orleans Teachers Union. She goes in depth about the libertarian economic policies imposed on the country of Iraq after the 2003 invasion, as well as the massive failures in policy that followed and the human suffering it caused for Iraqi civilians. You should read this book or watch the movie version on YouTube. Naomi Klein knows her shit. Anyway, one of Klein's main points is that when things fall apart, the policy responses that happen get crafted based on the ideas that are lying around. It turns out that right-wing libertarian economists and the people who bankroll them, like the Koch brothers, are incredibly good at having their ideas lying around. Largely, this comes in the form of think tanks like the Cato Institute and the Heartland Institute and the Manhattan Institute and the American Legislative Exchange Council. These are nonprofit organizations where very smart people get paid lots of money to say and write things that are pretty evil, and they also advise right-wing politicians on how to craft policies that are harmful to pretty much everyone except ruling class white people. That's the TLDR, but there's more nuance to it than that. 
But this is one reason that I make this silly little podcast, because I believe in the importance of articulating ideas and policy positions to exist out there in the public sphere lying around. I'm definitely not trying to overestimate my importance, because if you know me, then you know that I'm just a fairly doofy social worker, but nevertheless, I think it's important for us to identify what the medical anthropologist Paul Farmer calls preferential alternatives. Paul Farmer founded the group Partners in Health, and he's another guy whose thinking has influenced me a lot. You should read his book Pathologies of Power for a real mind-bender. Anyway, what Farmer believes, and what I also believe, is that people who are screwed over by systems deserve preferential alternatives. To enact a vision of a fairer, safer, kinder, greener world, and to me, that is the form of freedom that I want. Freedom from deprivation. Freedom from fear. To get there, we have to start by saying out loud the things we want and the things we know are true. This will help prepare us to enact those preferential alternatives when the circumstances become more conducive to change. And you are all welcome to call me a conspiracy theorist, but I think that that time is going to come. Okay, that was the long-winded introduction to this installment of A Feminist Therapist. Thank you for hanging in there. And now to transition to the actual topic of the day, which is understanding and preventing child maltreatment. This topic actually does follow that introduction because when it comes to planning out a vision for how to protect families, we need to have good ideas lying around. My overall argument is that preventing child maltreatment is a top three task of our society, tied with dismantling white supremacy and responding to climate change. And that it is very possible to envision a social and economic system in which the risk of childhood trauma exposure is significantly reduced. I don't think that it's possible to reduce the risk of childhood trauma exposure to zero, but I think it could be much lower than it currently is. And I also think that by reducing childhood trauma exposure in the short and medium term through policy change, we can create a new world in about one generation by unleashing massive amounts of human potential. What does that even mean? Essentially, and in general, this is not true for all people in all circumstances, but I'm speaking in broad strokes. In general, the more traumatized a person is, the less able they are to be the person that they were put on earth to be. The less traumatized you are, the easier it is to build and create and participate in things. That idea goes all the way back to episode one of A Feminist Therapist, to this concept of allostatic load. Psychological energy, emotional energy, physical energy, these are finite resources. And the more energy that's spent on coping with exposure to trauma, the less of it you tend to have available to give to your family, friends, schoolwork, artistic interests, and political activism. There's this fantasy that we have in our culture around this idea of you should take your pain and channel it into something. Personally, I hate that way of thinking, and I'm calling bullshit on it right now. Turning human suffering, quote, into something is the exception and not the rule. Mad props to everyone who has been able to take their pain and make something beautiful from it. But in my experience as a therapist, 9 out of 10 people with trauma exposure do not feel inspired by that experience, but held back. For example, I am not inspired by my experience of chronic depression. I hate it. I mean, it's taught me stuff, and I try to make use of the things that depression has taught me, but do I wish I didn't have depression? You betcha. I think that this idea that you're obligated to take your experience of suffering and transform it into something productive is just another lie that we're fed from capitalism. Because the corollary is that if you don't turn your suffering into something productive, then you're weak-willed. No, 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 no. The reality is that if horrible things have happened to you during your childhood, then chances are real that that pain will follow you into adulthood. Science has proven that. 
More on that in a minute. So right now, we are actually in a very interesting place in the history of understanding child abuse due to the confluence of two factors. First, because for decades, political movements for women's rights, victims' rights, and children's rights have been determinably shifting the balance of power in society away from cisgender men, because they are the ones who perpetrate most forms of violence against children. What's clear is that when men hold less social and economic power, violence against children and women decreases. Second, in the past 30 years, the science around understanding the effects of trauma on brain development has taken a few great leaps forward. Scientifically, we're now at a place where we know not only that trauma exposure derails human development, but also how and why. Quick side note here to pay homage to an absolute queen in the history of traumatology, a woman without whom this podcast could not exist. I mentioned her a minute ago. Her name is Judith Herman, a former professor at Harvard. In 1992, she came out with a game-changing book called Trauma and Recovery, which summarized a lot of accumulated data and wisdom about understanding and treating trauma. And it did so from an explicitly feminist perspective. In my opinion, one of Herman's most amazing insights is about traumatology, which is the act of studying trauma. Herman pointed out that most of the time, trauma is about somebody with more power doing something fucked up to somebody with less power. Therefore, seeking to understand trauma is always an inherently political activity, because when you study trauma, what you're doing is insisting on the validity and importance of the experience of victims. As we have discussed previously, feminism as a theory has a lot to do with analyzing power in a given situation, in a relationship, a family, a society. Who holds power and why? Who benefits from how things are set up? These are classic feminist questions. When you ask these questions, people with power tend to get nervous. Herman points out that because trauma is inherently political, that is, concerned with differences in power, you can only really study trauma if the broader social culture is allowing you to do so. The classic example is the one of how PTSD even became a legit mental health diagnosis, which didn't even happen until 1980. It was due in large part to the activism of traumatized veterans of the Vietnam War who insisted on having their experiences of trauma taken seriously. They wanted access to treatment for what used to be called shell shock, and they wanted their suffering to be acknowledged by the broader society. By forcing the issue of trauma into the public discourse, these activists demanded for their suffering to be witnessed and validated. They made society think about trauma when it would rather not have done so. The history of traumatology itself is one of forgetting and remembering. People knew about PTSD back in the 19th century, and then they forgot. Then they remembered again after World War I, and then they forgot again. Way back in the day, Sigmund Freud knew about it, and so did his mentor, Pierre Janet. There's this classic Freud quote that goes, Hysterics mainly suffer from reminiscences. This is about PTSD. It's Freud's recognition that having horrible memories of trauma exposure can haunt you and mess up your mind, body, and spirit. But those insights were forgotten, and people stopped asking about traumatic experiences. Why is that? According to Judith Herman, during the period of time where Freud was serious about understanding the condition that they used to call hysteria, which we now call PTSD, he started off by being pretty woke and quote-unquote listening to women. That is, Freud asked his female patients why they were hysterical, at which point many of them would disclose histories of childhood sexual trauma. 
Freud then wrote about the impact of childhood sexual trauma on psychological development and crickets. Nobody cared. He was completely ignored. The reason is that the broader society was not interested in trauma at that time. Nobody wanted to hear about the rapes of children taking place among the enlightened bourgeoisie of Vienna. So Freud abandoned this so-called seduction theory, the name of which is like rape culture AF because it implies that children are capable of consenting to sex, which they're not. And Freud decided that these memories that his patients were talking about They weren't memories at all, but actually they were made up by the women because these women had secret sexual fantasies about being raped, but they were ashamed of those sexual desires, and so they told these made-up stories instead. That was what Freud wrote about that got way more attention, and it formed one of the key bases of what came to become psychoanalysis. It's easy to be mad at Freud for that one, and we should be, but he was also just reading the room. It was political. He knew that nobody would read his work as long as he was taking women's sexual trauma seriously, so he pivoted. Like Herman says, you can only really talk about trauma when the society is willing to hear it. The thing is, ever since the Vietnam vets forced the issue, we've been in a cultural space of generally accepting the idea that PTSD is real and that trauma is real. This was unfolding at the same time as second-wave feminists were pointing out that rape culture is real, and that rape is not just interpersonal between two people, but a way that men control women in general with the ongoing threat of sexual violence. Anyhow, if you need more proof that trauma is political, just look at how racial trauma is dealt with within contemporary popular culture. Racists and conservatives are completely committed to the idea that black people today need to get over whatever it is that they're mad about, whereas the rest of us recognize that we really need truth commissions and then reparations over both the genocides committed against Native Americans, the enslavement of African people, the Jim Crow era, and the war on drugs. And we need that stuff ASAP. But acknowledging the existence of black and indigenous trauma poses a direct threat to racist political and economic projects. For example, entrapping black people literally in prisons and ghettos and figuratively within predatory payday loans and bail bond schemes. In other words, acknowledging trauma has real political and economic consequences. Responding to trauma ethically means that the beneficiaries of trauma lose access to power and resources. People who benefit materially from the status quo tend not to be very interested in systemic change. See also the fossil fuel companies covering up the data about climate change. The thing is, just like it's getting harder to pretend that climate change isn't happening, science is making it harder to pretend that trauma isn't real. Our understanding of the consequences of exposure to childhood trauma is increasingly sophisticated. What I mean is, there's a case against child abuse from the standpoint of morality, and that argument is that children are powerless and they deserve to be protected from harm. That moral argument is obvious to us even if maybe it wasn't so obvious to people when child labor was super normal and legal. Actually, child labor wasn't illegal in this country until 1938, which is less than 100 years ago. In most places in the world, it is illegal now, but it definitely still happens. I once met some child laborers when I was traveling in southern India. They were working in a large open pit, mining rocks that would then be crushed to be made into gravel or cement. It was one of the most fucked up things I've ever seen in my life. The person I was with who had taken me there told me not to cry. He said, if they see you cry, they'll start crying. 
I still wonder about those kids. But by the way, technically speaking, child labor laws represent what conservative economists would call a market distortion, which is to say a form of regulation that disrupts how the quote-unquote invisible hand of the marketplace dictates supply and demand, in this case, the supply of labor. But obviously these days you're not going to find any Republicans in favor of repealing child labor regulations because that's a politically untenable position, but that just proves their hypocrisy. The reality is, if you're in favor of laws to prevent children from working in strip mines, then that means yes, you believe that regulating the actions of businesses is a necessary task of government. Okay, so how is our understanding of child abuse more sophisticated than it used to be? The great leap forward in understanding childhood trauma came from an unlikely source, a weight loss clinic in Southern California in the mid-1980s. A doctor there by the name of Vincent Felitti was noticing that some women who had successfully undergone weight loss interventions couldn't manage to keep the weight off. And then he started asking questions, and it turned out that about half of the women in his program disclosed histories of childhood sexual trauma. In the words of Felitti, he was realizing that obesity was, quote, often an unconsciously chosen solution to unrecognized traumatic life experiences that were lost in time and further protected by shame, secrecy, and social taboos against exploring certain realms of human experience, end quote. In other words, it was no coincidence that sexually abused girls were growing up into women with binge eating disorders. For many survivors of sexual abuse, putting on weight was a self-protective measure because it desexualized them in the eyes of men. Which is to say, because of how fat phobia operates in society, these women knew on some level that being fat would make them less attractive and hence less likely to be re-victimized sexually. It is not necessarily the case that that was a conscious decision by the women, but it doesn't need to have been for it to be true. An obvious side note to state that being fat or overweight does not mean that somebody was sexually abused as a child, nor does it mean that being fat or overweight is an effective protection against sexual trauma as an adult or a child. Anyway, from this insight, Felitti decided that he wanted to understand how common childhood trauma was in the general population. So he came up with what he called the ACE questionnaire. ACE is an acronym that stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Adverse just means bad. And the questionnaire was 10 yes or no questions to get a basic read on how bad a childhood somebody had had. The number of yes answers is what's called your ACE score. The questions had to do with being neglected, physically abused, psychologically abused, sexually abused, and also whether your parents got divorced, whether somebody in the family was incarcerated, had an active addiction, severe mental illness, or if you were exposed to domestic violence. He then administered this questionnaire to 17,000 people within the Kaiser Permanente Health System in Southern California. So when they gathered the data, what they found was that ACEs are common. About 61% of adults surveyed across 25 states have reported that they had experienced at least one type of adverse childhood experience, and nearly one in six adults report that they have experienced four or more ACEs. So once he got the initial data, the next thing that Felitti did was that he took people's ACE scores and he compared them to the medical charts. What he found was that higher ACE scores were strongly correlated with greater incidence of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States. What that means is 
the more ACEs you had, the more likely you were to have heart disease, lung disease, liver disease. He found that ACE scores were powerfully related to smoking, overeating, alcoholism, risky sexual behavior, and injection drug use. What's more, ACE scores were incredibly powerful predictors of clinical depression and suicidality. Patients with only one adverse childhood experience, an ACE score of 1, were twice as likely to have attempted suicide as people with an ACE score of 0. Patients with an ACE score of 5 were 10 times as likely to have attempted suicide. Basically, the chart read like a diagonal line in terms of the more ACEs you have, the worse health you have as an adult, both physically and mentally. This data is pretty blunt. The worse your childhood, the more likely you were to be physically and mentally unwell as an adult. That is what you call correlation. We have definitively connected A to B. But it's not the same thing as causation, which is knowing that A causes B. And going from correlation to causation is the current challenge that trauma researchers are working on. In other words, the ACE study proved that there is an indisputable connection between childhood trauma exposure and poor health outcomes in adulthood, but the ACE study didn't explain why one set of experiences causes the other. So the current status of this research is summarized in a chart that looks like a pyramid. A podcast is not the best format in terms of examining charts and graphs, but we're going to do our best because this is important. So I'm going to describe the pyramid to you, and what you need to remember is that the purpose of the pyramid is to explain how childhood trauma messes people up as they grow. So at the very top of the pyramid is a triangle. This is the thing that all the other layers of the pyramid sort of lead up to and contribute to. And the top of the ACEs pyramid is labeled early death. The argument there is that ACEs have the power to shorten your life. Right below that is a pyramid slice that's labeled disease, disability, and social problems. That is the thing that causes early death. The thing that causes disease, disability, and social problems, the next slice of the pyramid, is labeled adoption of high-risk behaviors. In other words, having high-risk behaviors can cause disease, disability, and social problems, which can then lead to early death. Still with me? The slice underneath high-risk behaviors is social, cognitive, and emotional impairment, and the bottom of the pyramid says adverse childhood experiences. So basically the idea is that childhood trauma creates impairment in social functioning, which is abused and neglected kids tend to have problems relating to peers, teachers, to themselves. Sometimes they can be withdrawn or aggressive. They have problems with cognitive functioning, for example, difficulty with reading, writing, thinking, speaking. And they have challenges with emotional functioning, managing and responding to their own and other people's emotions appropriately. It's not yet fully understood exactly why this is so, which has to do with how limited our understanding is of the human brain. But basically, we know enough to state with certainty that for some people, trauma exposure sets you back in your development. In the words of the scientists, you experience impairment. Your non-traumatized peers, they're just having an easier time than you are at mastering developmental tasks like motor skills, language development, and forming trusting relationships. The other major gap in knowledge is around understanding exactly how impairment leads to high-risk behaviors. There's different theories to explain it. None are definitive. For example, Data shows that trauma-exposed kids are more likely to have parents who struggle with problems such as substance misuse, criminality, joblessness, and homelessness. A social learning theory would propose that because these behaviors become normalized for children, which is to say, we grow up thinking that what our parents do is normal, 
It's therefore logical that children who are raised in those environments would adopt similar behaviors once they reach adulthood. But you'll notice that that theory avoids addressing whether or how impairment from trauma itself leads to the adoption of high-risk behaviors. A theory that is concerned with individual emotional dysregulation would propose that the suffering, pain, and PTSD symptoms imposed on individuals by traumatic childhood experiences need to be soothed somehow, and that high-risk behaviors offer an opportunity for relief from internal suffering. Substance use is an obvious example. When you're drunk or high, you get a temporary vacation from feeling like hell. Or maybe drinking yourself to sleep saves you from horrible, repetitive, trauma-focused nightmares. Or let's say that there was sexual trauma that occurred during childhood and that it messed up my ability to trust other people. Sexual trauma represents a form of betrayal on the most intimate level. But my internal attachment machinery, which is to say my evolutionary hard wiring to seek connection with other human beings, it drives me toward relationships. In that context, high-risk sexual behavior, for example, having unprotected sex with lots of partners or combining sex with substance use, etc., is common. Unintended pregnancy is a frequent occurrence in that context. In their classic book called Promises I Can Keep, Why Poor Women Put Motherhood Before Marriage, the authors Catherine Eden and Maria Kafalis write about how some low-income women are, quote, so deeply engaged in a high-risk lifestyle that they simply aren't thinking about where their actions might lead. Depression and despondency, spawned by difficult life situations, sometimes stop them from caring whether they become pregnant or not." End quote. So data shows that children who are born into those circumstances are at high risk of ACEs of their own. This is one angle into what we call intergenerational trauma, traumatized parents raising traumatized kids. I quoted this book because I think that the statement that they're making about low-income single mothers is really instructive. The authors are trying hard to put words to this ultra-murky, super-gray area, that space between individual decision-making and environmental influence. When it comes to social and economic policy-making, this tends to be the divide that we see conservative or right-leaning policies are focused on individual decisions, either punishing people for having the wrong behaviors or reducing perceived restrictions on individual freedom, while progressive or leftist policies are arguing that if you give people access to dignified living conditions, then they'll make the right decisions on their own. This is a window into how political science often boils down to conflicting views about human nature. The conservative or quote-unquote realist position is that people are inherently self-serving and that the state exists to provide them with the freedom that they need to compete and with punishments if they break the rules. The progressive or quote-unquote liberal position is that people are intrinsically generous and caring and that the state exists to support their growth and development. So you already know which side of the debate I tend to fall on, but my reality is that I actually can appreciate both arguments. I don't think that either one is completely true or completely false. And given that democracy ought to be a process of shared decision-making, I don't think it's possible for one side to ever win this fight. But I do think that the pendulum has swung incredibly far to the right in the last 50 years, dangerously and violently far in the direction of letting corporations and the wealthiest do whatever they want, meanwhile reducing access to dignity for the poorest and most marginalized. I think we need a major rebalancing. That's my policy platform. 
We're still in the middle of the story, but we're gonna pause here to end this episode. So make sure to tune into episode nine of A Feminist Therapist for the second half of our conversation around understanding and preventing child maltreatment. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. If you wanna be in touch, I would really value that. You can send me an email at a feminist therapist at gmail.com. Thanks again and have a great day.